0: We've prayed for God to open our hearts and I pray that as we now look at this passage that that is exactly what he will do. Because this specific chapter has brought sometimes great disunity in the church. And so I would remind you again of the introductions, all three of them that I did right at the beginning of Revelation. Some of us will disagree on these. But I pray that the Lord will give us unity in the bigger picture of what Christ is doing. Because when He does return, it will all become clear to us. And we're all going to say, "Uh Aha! So that's how it works. So please, as we look at God's Word, you need to go back and do the work yourself. And see, what is God saying to you? And read God's Word widely. Genesis to Revelation. If you're going to read little bits in God's Word, you're not going to get a correct interpretation of God's Word. We need to have a wide perspective on it. And so, let's come to His Word now. Chapter 7. And we're going to read the whole chapter and I'm going to preach on the whole chapter this Sunday as well. There's a purpose for that and I'll show you it. Revelation chapter 7, it's Apostle John speaking. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. Twelve thousand from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an amazing passage. This morning I want to teach you about sevens. And no, if you're getting all excited now, it's not the rugby sevens. It's about the number seven and how sevens are used. And we've looked at this before in that introduction that I gave to you, the number seven. And you'll notice as we continue in our studies now from chapter six, we've finished, through to chapter 16, they form a unit and yet these sevens feature in these chapters. And you're going to notice this. You're going to find seven seals on the scroll and we've already done seals one to six and seal seven will come in two Sundays time. But there are seven seals on a scroll that are opened and then seven trumpets will be blown. There's the next group of seven. And then seven bowls of wrath will be poured out. And what are they all describing? God's judgment with a small j during this tribulation. So remember that, it's really important. Now, some say that these happen sequentially, in other words, in sequence of order, and in the future. And so we're waiting for these to happen. And so they look to specific world events, they look to specific nations who are involved in these events, and they say this is what God is doing through these descriptions of trumpets and bowls in the future. However, many believe, and I include myself among these, that these are parallel descriptions, different cameras on the same events, but slightly different flavour on each one as we look at it, of life under God's judgment for sin in the millennium, that is, in the church age, since Jesus ascended. In other words, now. We're living in that age from when Jesus ascended into heaven. And we're living under God's judgment for sin. And it's not the final judgment, it's His judgment for sin, His ongoing judgment for sin, which will increase in intensity until Jesus Christ reappears. And each description of judgment, emphasizes a different aspect of this judgment. That it all ends every time with God's people who are victorious. And you need to see that theme coming up. So we'll have the seven scrolls opened, and it will end with God's people victorious. And then we'll have the seven trumpets that are blown, and the seven bowls of wrath. But the theme throughout is, God judges but His people are victorious. We need to remember that. Otherwise you're going to be overwhelmed by these things. You're a believer. And then all these descriptions end with a final overthrow of Satan in chapter 17 and 18. I'm giving you a bit of a bigger picture now. Satan is finally overthrown and the description of that is in chapter 17 and 18. And then those glorious chapters, chapters 19 and 20... We're heavenly victory for Christians and for believers in Christ are described. Alright, so you got the big picture. Got the judgments of God described, chapter 6 to 16. Satan and the final battle, and he's overthrown chapter 17 and 18, and then chapters 19 and 20. Heavenly victory for believers. That's the big picture. And so these are parallel descriptions of all those things happening. And that is why when John says, after this I saw, or when he says, then I looked, he's describing another one of these scenes that he's seeing. It's as if he's standing in the middle of this whole revelation to him. And he sees a picture and then he describes it. And then I looked and now he describes this. And then I saw and he describes this. And so he goes describing what he's seeing, but it's all happening until Jesus Christ reappears. So let's link back after that bit of introduction. Where were we last week? We looked at the sixth seal and God's terrible judgment falling on those on earth. And we ended with that terrible question which was not a question but a statement. Who can stand when God is on His throne and He's judging? Who can stand before Him in their own merits? And the answer was what? No one. No one can stand. If you're there in your own merit, you will not stand before God. He will judge you. There will be no excuse. Scripture teaches us. But then naturally the question comes to you and I say, well, what's happening to God's people during this time? Will they too be destroyed with the unrighteous when the earth throws the mountains down onto the people? And what will happen to me in this last time? What will happen to believers? Well, let's look at what John saw. He says, after this I saw. And we're going to be featuring today seeing, hearing and then seeing. So please remember that. It's really important if we're going to interpret these passages properly. He sees the angels. He hears the number of 144,000 and then he sees a great crowd. Let's see what happens here. John says, I saw, what did he see? I saw four angels and they were standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, critics of the Bible will say, ah, you see you believers, you're out of touch. The Bible's teaching a flat earth. Four corners of the earth, come on. How can I believe anything else that's written here? It's called metaphor. It's called symbolism. You see, it's speaking about the whole earth, in our language today, all four points of the compass, they didn't have a compass in those days. All four points of the compass, and they are the angels standing on the whole earth, ready to bring God's judgment over the whole earth. By these great winds. And what have we just read about in chapter 6? The four horsemen going out to the four corners of the earth. Great winds going out. And if if you want to know where the winds come from, well it's from the books of Jeremiah and Zechariah. There it links the horsemen and the winds and angels. It's all linked together. And any good Jew would have known this because they would have been taught this from a small age. Those three things would always be together. Wind, angels, judgment and horsemen. And as these four angels are about to go and implement what God is releasing, His judgment, another angel rises from the east. Why from the east? Well, Think of where John is on Patmos. From Patmos, where would Israel be? In the east. Where does the sun come up? In the east. The sun of righteousness. You see the symbolism here? Hope comes from the east, and please don't, you don't have to go to your windows now tomorrow morning and all go and worship God from the east. Or look, pointing to, you don't have to do that. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's very, very lonely there and sitting in isolation, being persecuted for his faith. And he sees this vision, why? To encourage him in his faith, but also other believers. And it's a bit of symbolism given to them to see hope. And so, I don't know, who of you saw the movie that we showed? um, What was it called again? I can't remember now, we showed it last week. The Insanity of God. There's that Russian prisoner. And what does he do? Every morning he stands in prison... And he sings his heart song to Jesus facing the East. It's the same symbolism here. There's hope for him. He's in prison. Well, it's the same hope being given to believers. That's all. Don't go and make any more of it. And so, here this, this angel comes from the East and these four angels are about to put God's judgment all over the world and this one angel who has the seal of God in him, in other words, he's got God's authority on him, he shouts out to them, Hold it! Don't go and damage earth. Don't go and damage trees. Hold back. We first need to seal all of God's people, all believers, with the seal of God on their foreheads. We need to first go and put the seal on the bond servants. There's a literal word used there. On the bond servants, those who have been freed by God. We need to put His seal on them, so that when the judgment comes on the earth, they are seen. And God's judgment does not fall on them and destroy them in the judgment. What does that make you think of? Egypt painted doorposts so that the angel of death would recognize who are the ones to be saved, right? There's so much it you need to study this at home. We can only do so much here. And so I have to push on. So what is the sealing all about? We've looked at the symbolism before of sealing. Remember we've got the six seals on the scroll. The seal protects against tampering by people from outside. It's reserved for those who are to open it. Alright? And believers, these believers, these bond servants of God, when they receive the seal of God on him, they are sealed for eternity. They will not be destroyed during God's judgment. And they will be protected by the Father, because the seal is to be found on them. There's much more to it. I have to push on. It marks ownership. When judgment comes upon them, they will be seen as belonging to God Himself. They've been bought by the blood of the Son. Leave them alone. It certifies their genuineness. God has tested them. And in their hearts, He's found them to be genuine. Why? Because He's done the work. He recognizes His own fingerprints. And so He seals the believer as such through His Spirit. Let's turn to Ephesians. We just have to jump a little bit ahead. We're crooking in a way. But let's jump a bit ahead. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. What does it say there? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that in other words, when you became a believer in Jesus Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's when it happened. You received the seal on your forehead, metaphorically. If you go look in the mirror, all you'll see is wrinkles. I, be- I looked this morning. So I'm a bit disheartened. You will see, you will receive the seal with the, you will be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And so, God's bond servants are sealed by that powerful angel, and then God's judgment goes out into all the world, and they're sealed on their foreheads. Why their foreheads? They received the name of the Father and the Son and the Lamb on their foreheads. How do I know that? If you look a little ahead in Revelation chapter 14 verse 1, you'll see again this great crowd which we're going to look at now, the 144,000. They have the seal of God on their foreheads. The name of the Father and the Lamb or the Son on their foreheads. Chapter 22 verse 4 describes the same thing. You can look those. I'll put the references there for you. So if you're taking notes, and I hope you are, you can look up these references. And the sealing comes from, way back in from Ezekiel chapter 9, where the seal was put on the foreheads to show two groups of people, to differentiate between them. Those who were God worshippers and those who were not. And you need to go and read the whole of Ezekiel chapter 9. Go and look at it. Those who were God worshippers had a seal put on them. And those who didn't have the seal were not God worshippers. It identified the idolaters and the non-idolaters. That's what it comes to. Those who had other idols in their lives. And those who worship God received the seal. He is the only God. And so the seal of God was there during the tribulation. And it is also the direct opposite of the mark of the beast. Now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work widely over here. I'm trying to condense a lot of stuff. Satan, you see, wanted to put a mark on his own to identify them as a false Messiah. He was putting his mark on them too. He was copying what God was done, but it was a false copy. Do you understand what what I'm talking about here? He also put his mark on. Let's go and read it. Scripture says it much more plainly than me. Revelation chapter 13. Turn with me if you would. Revelation 13 verse 16 to 18. This is what I'm talking about. The second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Here it is. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Note that. The name of the beast, God put his name on the foreheads of his people. And the number of his name. And this calls for wisdom. That the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. The number of the beast. What is the number for God? 777. The perfect number. Alright. We're not going in there now by the way. We'll get to these things. But note That during the tribulation, the mark of the beast was on his followers. And the mark of God were were on, the mark of God was on his followers. So that judgment would come to those that it must come on. And then later in Revelation, during the fifth trumpet judgment, and again I'm jumping ahead, we'll come to these, locusts from the abyss attack the people of the earth with power like that of scorpions, it's described. Um, In Revelation chapter 9 verse 4. And they were told, now look at the parallel. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Do you see? And the individuals who are marked by God, therefore, are preserved. And you and I, if we have the mark of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we have God's name written on our foreheads, if the name of the Lamb is on your forehead because you have been saved, you are preserved for eternity. You need to hear that. Because when the trouble of life comes around you, when stuff happens, you will want to know that God will keep me through this. I will not go under. And though I lose my life, He will preserve my spirit. I will see God with my own eyes, as Job says. I will see my Redeemer. We need to hear those words. We are preserved by God because of the mark that He puts on us. Judgment cannot touch our souls. They are preserved for eternity. I'm jumping ahead to my end. And yes, we may lose our physical lives. And that's why we have, as we saw last week, these souls at the foot of the altar who cry out to God, Lord, how long will You allow all this to happen, or not, to carry on happening? When will You bring Your justice? They have died; they've lost their lives. But our spiritual lives are with God, and they are preserved. I hope there's hope for you there this morning. Now, what does John hear next? He sees four angels. And now, he hears something. What does he hear? Verses 4 to 8. Now, note what Scripture says here. And I heard the number of those sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, has he seen the 144,000? At this stage? No. He's heard their number, 144,000. We'll come to that. You see, many sincere Bible-believing believers would understand the 144,000 like this. And this is where we'll differ, and we'll differ graciously. And with great love. They will say that the church is raptured prior to the Great Tribulation. God takes them out. And while the church is in heaven with him, a remnant of 144,000 ethnic Jews are converted. 12,000 from each tribe. And these Jewish male evangelists, these Jewish converts, in turn evangelize the Gentiles who are still on the earth. And they make up this great multitude which we'll see next in verse 9. That is what these people say according to their interpretation of Scripture. And so we've got three groups that they identify. The church in heaven, these Jewish evangelists, the 144,000, and then the Gentiles who are also saved. Three groups of believers. However, And I'm not going further into that view. However, other as sincere Bible-believing Christians, and I want to emphasize that, they've all done their study too, believe that Revelation and the wider reading of Scripture teaches that the 144,000 are not just an ethnic Jewish remnant. We're not eliminating those who are saved from God's people, the Jews. But they are not just an ethnic group. And definitely not an anointed class of saints that the JWs talk about that came about since 1935. Definitely not that, whatever they might tell you at the door. But that these, this group represents the entire community of the redeemed of God for the following reasons. And I'm going to spell this out clearly. I hope so. Point one. Why do we say that this is the, these are the redeemed of God? Firstly, because scripture teaches that God seals all those who worship Him, as we've seen before, not just Jewish converts. Secondly, the 144,000 are called servants or bond slaves, we've already looked at that word, of our God. And they described as that in Revelation 7 verse 3. And in Revelation, the phrase servants of God always refer to all God's redeemed people. Not just an ethnic Jewish remnant. And so there's no reason to make 144,000 any more restricted than that. Why would we put that restriction on this group? And therefore, if you are a servant of the living God, you are one of those 144,000 mentioned here. Thirdly, And I'm reading this so that I can be as clear as possible. The 144,000 mentioned later in chapter 14 verse 4, and I referred to that earlier, are those who've been redeemed from the earth, and those who were purchased from among men. And they are the redeemed, drawn from all peoples, not simply, again, ethnic Jews. Or we to think that these 144,000 refers to a chosen group of celibate Jewish men who have not defiled themselves with women in the Jewish ceremonial sense. It makes much more sense to realize that the 144,000 is a symbolic number highlighting those who have moral purity and who have been set apart for spiritual battle. Are you still tracking with me? Some of you are looking like stunned mullets. Third, uh, fourthly, I plot on. I'll, I'll, I'll try and clarify this a little bit still. Let's get to the numbers. Okay? Now, if you want to hear about numbers, there are others much more qualified than me who can tell you lots about the numbers. But I'm not going there. Just a few of these numbers. The 144,000, where does that come from? It's stylized here. It's not to be taken literally, because there were more than 144,000 Jews saved. Much more. And definitely, there are more JWs today than 144,000, and that shoots their own argument out out the water. So what happens to the rest of their JWs? Why then evangelise and make more JWs? Sorry, JWs. You see, this 144,000 is broken down into 12 times 12 times the thousands. What does the 12 stand for? 12 being the number of completion and perfection. We've seen that before. For God's people. Representing the 12 tribes of Israel, ethnic Israel, with the foreigners who were among them. Think of Rahab. Think of some of the others who were outside of Israel who were saved and who came in under Israel in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the twelve apostles of the Lamb and all those who were saved, New Testament believers, representing God's people, twelve times twelve, and then times a thousand. We've said that before. What does a thousand represent? A multitude, many, more than you can think big number. So here we have 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000. And so this is a way of saying all of God's people under the Old and the New Covenant. Now please listen to me. This is not replacement theology, as this has been accused of saying. We are not replacing anyone. We do not deny that God has saved His own among, from among the Jewish people and that He will hold them in the palm of His hand and one day just before He's come there's going to be a mighty work of revival among the Jewish people. And we pray for them and as Gentiles we must pray for them and we must bring them the Gospel. But, this is the fulfillment, not replacement, it's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Genesis 22 verse 17, what did He tell Abraham? He said this to him, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Do you see it? And so this grouping that he hears, 144,000, is this promise of God which is being fulfilled to Abraham. And there they are. But I'm not over. A little bit more evidence and then I'll finish with this. Now let's look at the twelve tribes listed here. Why tribes? Why does he mention them at all? Who were they? Twelve tribes of? Twelve tribes of? Jacob. And why is there a change in the order and the names of the way the tribes are usually listed? And if you go and compare in the Bible, you'll see there's a change in the way that they're listed. Judah is mentioned first. Why? We read about that earlier. Because who comes from Judah. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? Jesus Christ Himself, the Messiah. And so He's mentioned first. And then the, the rest of the ten of Jacob's sons are mentioned. Except for one tribe. Dan is not mentioned. Manasseh, Joseph's son, Jacob's grandson, is listed in the place of Dan. Why? What happened with Dan? They were idolaters. And idolatry was found amongst them. If you go and look at the description of Jacob's son, even Jacob's description, which was a prophetic description of what his son Dan would get up to, he speaks there of the serpent. Go and look at those passages. We don't have time today. All I can say is that Dan is left, left, left off this list of tribes and in his place is put Manasseh, Joseph's son. What's it pointing to? Why is Dan left out? It's again pointing to the purity of the redeemed people of God who John hears. And so in conclusion, when you look at the number, the list and the order of the tribes recorded in a specific way, they depict the totality of God's pure and perfectly redeemed servants from all time, from all the earth. And here's the point. Not one of them is left out. All 144,000 of them will be there in heaven one day. That's what he hears. And now, imagine John standing there in, the, in this vision of his in the Revelation, and now he turns from hearing the, uh, the 144,000, and what does he see? Does he see 144,000? He sees a far greater multitude. It's shockingly greater than what he thought. He sees this great, vast number. You see, Scripture again mentions the number there. It says a crowd, what does it say? That no one could number. That's a number. But it's so much greater than what we thought, than what John thought. And it's this promise of God that's, that's come to reality. And the Jewish nation and those among them who were saved thought, well, there's a few of us and God will save many Gentiles. But when they get to heaven, they are going to see the fulfilment of the Messiah. This great crowd which no one can number is standing there in heaven with God. Those saved and sealed by God. We're not going to have two crowds separated in heaven. Will all the 144,000 stand here please and all the rest, you stand here? No. That's not how it's going to be. It's going to be one vast multitude standing in unity before God. He's only got one people. They are unified before Him. Jew and Gentile before Him. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 to 29. What does it say to us? Here's the reality of what it says. It says, In God's kingdom, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. God's promise to Abraham fulfilled. Isn't that an amazing thing? And as Gentiles, we can't get big heads Why? Because we are grafted into the believers who come from God's people, the Jews, who have believed. Not all Jews will be in heaven one day, but those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and grafted into Him, those of us Gentiles, non-Jews, who have believed. And together we form the body of Christ, saved and redeemed, sealed by God, With the seal of God and the Lamb on our foreheads. Yes, is there to be disunity about this? Please, no. So I've spent quite a lot of time on that, but I need to spend time now on the crowd, this vast multitude. And so we see this description of this cloud, of this crowd, this crowd that no one could number. The fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 32 verse 12 where he said that they would come from every nation, tribe, people and language. And now look at this crowd and you need to see them in your mind's eye. I could only find a Google picture. Alright? And you know that's true of course. What are they wearing? White robes. What have they got in their hands? Palm branches. What does that mean to us Westerners in New Zealand? Nothing. isn't it? We need to know more. So palm branches, what does that mean? Come on. It means salvation. It comes from the Feast of Tabernacles, amongst other things. And it speaks about God's protection over Israel in their wanderings, and now also to those who have come through the great tribulation. Imagine John now sitting on Patmos, and he sees this great vision, and this great crowd dressed in white, and seeing them waving palm branches. He was there with the Lord on earth, wasn't he, when Jesus was still on earth, and he will remember what? Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And what were the crowds doing? Waving palm branches. Salvation has come. They thought it was an earthly Messiah, but it was the heavenly one that had arrived. They were saying more than they could think. And he says, This is the one who has brought us through the tribulation. And what was this crowd doing? Not just waving palm branches, but they were also crying out with a loud voice. And what were they crying out? Verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the stress here is salvation belongs to God. Not to us. I can't save myself. They knew they couldn't save themselves. Every single every single one of those believers knew know, that they couldn't have saved themselves. It was all up to God and the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Why? The Lamb made it possible. Yes, salvation is not through our own strength and goodness and wisdom. And so they join in the throng in heaven, praising God in that throne room of heaven with the four living creatures, says our text, and the 24 elders. And that's not all, it's gonna get louder. Uh, this is exciting stuff. Verse 11 to 12, what happens now? If I had an orchestra, I'd be keeping them silent. And alright, hold back, hold back, your turn's coming. Go! And cymbals would go and crash. And millions and millions and millions of angels now stand around the throne. And they've already been standing there watching this whole spectacle. And now they too join in with their millions and millions and millions of voices. And believe me, I've never heard an angel singing, but I bet they can sing. They've had lots more practice than us. And they join in this multitude without number, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and they echo the words... Amen. What you've just said, so be it. It is blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might. And I'm sure they could have just carried on and naming all these attributes which belong to God. They belong to our God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Why are you not standing? Save them, I pray, Lord. And what happens now? This elder comes and he says to John, Who are these? This is a test? No, it's not. It wasn't a test. He says, Who are these? It was a rhetorical question again to John. And John says, Lord, you know. And Lord is not Lord as in capital L, it's Respect, Lord. He was speaking to an angel. Lord, you know. And he says to him, the elder says to him, come. These are those who have come through the great tribulation. That time prophesied by the prophet Daniel in chapter 11 and 12 of Daniel. That time when believers would be put under great persecution because God was judging the, the sin that was to be found on earth. And look at them now. They are clothed in white robes. What do we know about white robes? They are the overcomers. They are the victors. And these aren't white robes which have been dyed white. What have they been done? How have they got white? They have been washed in blood. They should be red, right? No. They have been washed in the blood of who? Of the Lamb. Why? So that blood could clean sin. And so there they stand, this great multitude, clothed in white, sparkling white, with not a stain of sin on them, because Christ has done it. It's His blood. And He always does His work perfectly. And there they stand in white robes, the victors. And how do they now serve God? Verse 15, they serve Him day and night in the inner sanctuary. In other words, in God's immediate presence. Who could only go into God's immediate presence in the Old Testament? The high priest. Once a year. What did Jesus Christ get right on the cross? We now gain entry to God, to His inner presence, His immediate presence, day and night. Thank you, Sue. Someone gets it! You're a hard, you're a hard bunch. Thank you. They're in God's immediate presence and they praise and worship Him and serve Him day and night. I don't know what that's going to be like, but we are going to be joyful in serving the Lord day and night. That's all we know. How does God care for them verse 15 to 17? It says God literally spreads His tent, and the word here is His tabernacle. God literally spreads His tabernacle, His Shekinah glory, His closeness, His immediate presence over them. You see, in the Jewish world, when you walked into someone's tent, you were protected by them, even if you were their enemy. They gave you food, they gave you shelter, they gave you protection from the sun in the day and from the cold at night, because it gets cold in desert places. You came under their protection. They gave you food to eat, they gave you drink to drink, they look after you. You came under their protection. Well, God spreads His tent, His tabernacle over us, His very presence He spreads over us. And there will be no more hunger, there will be no more thirst. There will be no more heat from the sun or suffering that will come on us. Do you see what he does? And that's not all, he's more. Because the sun also is there. And who is the sun? He's also in the presence of God. He is God. And what does the sun do? What does the sun do? What does your text say? He will lead his people. And where will He lead them? He will lead them to springs of living water, waters of life. There's so much more there. We'll come to those. We're going to find the waters of life one day in heaven as well. And together, God, that's the Son and the Father, shall wipe away every tear. And the Greek word here is literally every drop. Thank you. There will be no more tears, not even one. Because God's very presence will be with us. And the Son's living water will be in us. That's what we look forward to one day. And so when we think of our lives today, what can come against us? Anything. If we lose our bodies, we join the multitude, praising God. I want to ask you, put five statements to you and then we through. Short statements. Just to highlight these things again. Firstly, this one. Salvation comes from God alone. You can't be a good Kiwi and get into heaven. Nothing that we can bring to God will save us. We have to come through the Lamb's blood into Christ's presence. And that means you've got to give your life to Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Bank balance, good lifestyle, doing good for others, giving things to the poor, going on pilgrimages. Nothing will save you in that day. You must come through the Lamb to receive salvation from God. How do I know that? Am I making it up? Scripture says, you'll often hear me saying that, my evidence is in God's Word. John chapter 14 verse 6. This is what Jesus, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And it doesn't end there. It carries on. It says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Believe God. If you're not a believer yet, here's the second question I want to ask you this morning. Whose seal is on your forehead? Is it God's or Satan's? If you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, we've heard this morning, then He puts His name and the Son's name and the name of the city on your foreheads. You will become a pillar in God's house, as we saw earlier. And His name will be written on you as well. And you bear the seal of the Son of God. But if you are not a Son of God, then you bear someone else's seal. You bear the seal of the anti-God, Satan himself. You see, there's no option here. You must wear a seal on your head. If you do not belong to Jesus, you wear Satan's seal. And when God's judgment comes down, you will not be saved from His judgment. It will pour out on you in its full immensity and power forever and ever and ever, and ever. If you're a believer and you have the seal of God on you, then rest in that assurance, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Third promise is God Himself will dry every tear because He will cover you with His Shekinah glory, His immediate presence. So take comfort from that. And you might be going through cancer. You might be going through all kinds in your life. But take comfort in this. When you come to that great multitude and it might be through the portals of death. We don't fear death anymore. It has lost its thing, hasn't it? You will be in His presence and He will dry every tear. There will not be a speck or a molecule of cancer in heaven. Not one. There will not be brain tumors in heaven. There will not be misformed people in heaven. There will be no struggles in heaven. No one will die in heaven. There will be, praise the Lord, no funerals in heaven. He will dry it ev- who said sounds good. <laughs> he will dry every tear from us because of his immediate presence. And fourthly, I see it's getting out of hand now I'm going to finish. <laughs> allow the lamb and the shepherd allow the lamb to shepherd you daily. Submit to him. This is the practical implications of this teaching. The Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, has given us His Spirit, His deposit, His seal. Allow Him to lead you daily. Is there any part of you which is not a bond slave to Christ? It can't be. Why? Because what was a bond slave? A bond slave was bought in their entirety for the Master. Not part of them did not belong to their Master. Everything. And so if there's any part of us which is still not bowed the knee, we need to bring it under submission of Jesus Christ. He can do it. His Spirit is there, who is God Himself, the all-powerful God. Don't forget that. And His Spirit can change that disobedience to holiness. But we need to come. Because, as it says in 1 Kings 8.23, those who walk before Him Walk before Him with all their heart. And then, fifthly and lastly, as you allow God to live in your midst, that's in our midst as a church, His glory is shown to the nations. And thereby we fulfill His mission. I will be glorified on the earth, says the great God Almighty. The earth will see and know that I am God. And we are part of that making known to the earth. If we are submitted to what the Spirit is doing through each of us. May God be praised. May He use us in this week for His glory. Amen. God, keep this great picture in front of our minds. Every single day. Because when the storms of life come against us, when the persecution comes, when the judgment, your judgment against sin, falls all around us too, and we are affected, thank you that we know that even though we suffer, you are changing us to be pure. But also, you are preserving us. And you will not let one of us stay behind. We will all be there with you, surrounding your throne. And we will all be surrounding your throne with our voices, together with the angels and all those heavenly beings shouting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth and the heavens are full of your glory. Be praised our God. Amen.